0: It's Thursday, August 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Many of the transmission chains of COVID-19 begin with super-spreading events. That's when one person, usually in a crowded indoor space, passes the virus to dozens of others. Some estimates say that 10% of people have been causing 80% of infections. But one big question is who is the super-spreader, the person, or the event? Katherine Harmon Courage, contributor to Vox, joins us for how super spreading is fueling the pandemic and how we can stop it. Next, we have more bad news for the Washington football team. A new report says that Larry Michael, the team's former lead broadcaster and a senior vice president, told staffers to make a video of lewd outtakes from a cheerleader bikini shoot, specifically for team owner Dan Snyder. Female employees were also directed not to be present in any areas where players were because they could be a distraction. 25 women also came forward to say that they experienced sexual harassment while working for the team. Will Hobson, sports reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What is the issue of
1: these... Yeah, these single infected folks infecting lots of other people, and then maybe those people going on to infect even more. So it's really an issue of yeah, being able to stop some of these larger spreading events. Joining
0: us now is Catherine Harmon Courage, contributor to Vox. Thanks for joining us, Catherine.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to talk about super spreading events and the pandemic that we're going through right now. You know, a lot has been made about how. We shouldn't be in large crowds. We shouldn't be in rooms that are poorly ventilated with people because this is how these super spreading events can occur. One person might be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. You can get in a room with a few people and then they get it and then they start spreading it around. And this is kind of how a super spreader event would start. So Catherine, tell us a little bit about how this is kind of fueling the pandemic. And then after that, we'll kind of get into what we can do to help limit this at least.
1: Yeah, and that's what a lot of the epidemiologists I spoke with have said too. Is yes, if we could stop a lot of these super spreading events from happening, we could actually really get a hold on the pandemic fairly quickly. It is an issue of these, yeah, you know, these single infected folks infecting lots of other people, and then maybe those people going on to infect even more. So it's really an issue of yeah, being able to stop some of these larger spreading events could really help us bring the transmission levels down to a more manageable amount.
0: Now, as a super spreader a person or is a super spreader the actual event, the you know the actual happening of being in an enclosed space and then that kind of happens? W- which is it?
1: That's a great question. I think it could be both um, the individual and the super spreader event itself.
0: What would make a person a super spreader or more likely to be a super spreader?
1: And that's where we're really learning some interesting science about this. Is originally, we didn't really know if people were more likely, and we're still finding out if people are more likely in some biological fashion to have more copies of the virus in their system or be more inclined to be able to spread it more easily than others. But by and large, the science is showing us that it's not necessarily the person themselves. It's about the timing during their infection. And as you mentioned earlier, pre-symptomatic people, those are the ones who often are driving these super spreader events because they don't feel sick yet, but they also happen to have a really high amount of virus in them. We know that the virus loads are actually highest right before you start to feel symptoms. So there's really no way for people to know based on how they're feeling if they're likely to spread the virus to other people or not.
0: That's one of the interesting things that we've been hearing for a while about the coronavirus is that the viral load is the heaviest at the beginning, maybe even before you're showing these symptoms. And once you've kind of had symptoms for a few days, you might still even have some, you're probably not as likely... To spread it that much then, I mean, a bunch of different things. You're probably at home by then because you're not feeling well. You're obviously not going to big, crowded places. So it's right at the beginning when somebody gets sick is when they're most susceptible to spreading this. Catherine, tell us a little bit about some of the super spreading events that we know. Just recently, there was a story about a super spreading event in Boston. That one was getting a lot of play.
1: Mm -hmm. That happened in late February. It was really kind of before COVID was too much on our radar here in the U.S. um, in terms of tracking and looking out for it. So that was at a biotech conference. It was an international management conference being held in Boston. And recently, a new preprint study that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but there are dozens of researchers on it, and they've been collecting and tracking the genetic sequences from different COVID tests. And so they were able to track the emergence of this one strain of COVID and trace it back to probably just one introduction from one individual that looks like they probably came from Europe to that conference and then ended up infecting a large number of people from that conference who then traveled back to their home states and their home countries, bringing that with them. And they were able to really say that there's a good chance that this one introduction from this one conference event then led to a large percentage actually of COVID cases in the Boston area. And, uh, you know, a not small number of them across the U.S.
0: as well. Yeah, I think they estimated that that one Biogen conference led to an estimated 20,000 COVID-19 cases Mm -hmm. in total. And that's just Mm -hmm. so crazy to hear that. And, you know, little pockets, little outbreaks like this have kind of happened all over the place. So all of these things kind of lead us into the guidance by public health officials and why they say, hey, well, you shouldn't be going to concerts. You shouldn't be going to bars. Unfortunately, you shouldn't be going to church events sometimes too, because, you know, you're in closed areas a lot of times. Sometimes people are singing and yelling, and this is when you're blowing out all that viral load all over the place.
1: Exactly. And that was one of the interesting things too, is that, yeah, it's not in all indoor spaces are created equally. As you mentioned, that's the ones, especially where people are speaking at high volumes, they're singing that are more likely we've found so far to be, um, to lead the super spreading events
0: let's talk a little bit more about the closed environments versus the open environments. Obviously, in a closed environment, you're probably about 20 times more likely to spread some coronavirus infections than open air ones. But even still, things like we were saying, kind of concerts that I know a lot of people want to get back to seeing live music, these are still problematic areas.
1: And there was one interesting study out of South Korea looking at an outbreak of COVID at a gym facility, and they tracked back a lot of cases back to these kind of aerobic dance classes like Zumba, but they had an infected instructor who also then went on to teach Pilates and yoga classes, and people in those classes weren't infected. So it does seem to have a lot to do with kind of that like respiratory amount that might be going out into
0: the air, as you said. So then the big question, what do we do to limit these super spreading events? It's kind of what we've been hearing from public health experts, wearing the mask, social distancing, limits on capacity in certain locations. These are all the things that we've been hearing about, been doing, and that's what we have to continue to do to limit these events.
1: And I think, too, as the Biogen conference example shows, you know, even if you're in an area of low transmission, it's not, you're not immune. You know, there are still going to be cases of COVID circulating, so you can't count on the fact that your area seems to not have too many cases and think that maybe going into an indoor space like this or an event like this might be safe. But as that that example shows, it just takes one introduction into a closed space with lots of people to really spark potentially tens of thousands of new cases.
0: The guidelines that Japan has out is to avoid the three C's, which is closed environments, crowded places, and close contact settings. So we still got a lot of work to do in limiting the spread of the virus, but at least we are getting a handle on it, and we know that these super-spreading events can pose a big problem with outbreaks. Catherine Harmon-Courage, contributor to Vox, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I
2: thought that would just be deleted, and the only thing that would be seen would be the kind of PG-13 sanitized behind-the-scenes video that the team published on on its website. So, I mean, these women are outraged. They feel violated. The idea that these moments in in which they're exposed were kind of spliced together into these sort of, like, lewd montage videos, they do feel is an outrage. And they also, you know, their attorneys feel like there's potential legal fallout here. Joining us
0: now is Will Hobson, sports reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Will. Thanks for having me. The Washington Post has a new story out about the Washington football team and the workplace there with regards to how they were treating women and just a lot of bad stuff with regards to the cheerleaders. This comes at a bad time for the team. There have been a lot of bad stories about them recently. Obviously, they had to change the name from the Washington Redskins to the Washington football team because people were saying the name was racist. Then you guys at the Post did another story about some women that said there was sexual misconduct going on in the back office and this new story now there's more of that women couldn't access certain areas of the workplace there and then these two videos that were made of the cheerleaders it was like a swimsuit video shoot but there was videos made with their bare breasts and things like that outtake clips i guess they were calling them there's a lot to go through so will help us navigate what the latest news is
2: so, I mean, basically, we've got 25 additional women have come forward with allegations of sexual harassment while working for Washington's NFL team. And it's an addition to 17 women that we wrote about in, in a previous story. And what's new with these 25 new women is we have a few allegations involving team owner Dan Snyder. Most specifically, we have one former employee who has said he witnessed the longtime broadcaster Larry Michael order up a video of nude outtakes of cheerleaders and that Larry told this employee and his staffers that this was for Dan Snyder. And then we we have a copy of this video as well as a a 2010 video that contained the same illicit material. And then additionally, there's a cheerleader, Tiffany Skirby, who came forward and said that in 2004 at a charity event, Dan approached her and suggested she join a friend of his in a hotel room upstairs to, uh, quote unquote, get to know him better.
0: In a lot of these cases, there's multiple people that know about what was going on. Let's take the video first and kind of dissect that. So there's a video called Beauties on the Beach, and this is kind of the making of the cheerleader swimsuit calendar. And as you mentioned, Larry Michael said, we need to make a video for Dan Snyder. Let's get the good bits. Let's get the good parts. And what this meant was let's get the parts where the woman's breasts were fully exposed. And they edited about, I guess, a 10-minute video to this. And obviously, Larry Michael said this is false, but there's all sorts of people there from the organization who actually put it together. And when you showed this video to other people, they said, well, yeah, this looks like this is from the team videographer.
2: There's no disputing that this video came from the official team shoots. The footage came from the videographers employed by the team. I mean, when we see these videos, this isn't like something shot by like someone's cell phone who's just on the beach that day. And furthermore, in these topless shoots, some of these cheerleaders told us these were closed shoots. There was nobody there with a camera except for the team employees. So then really the only other claim that the team can potentially make is that, well, perhaps this was the work of a rogue employee and who wasn't ordered by management to put this together. And in response to that, I mean, we have, Two people from two different time frames, 08 and 10, who are telling us, no, this was ordered up by Larry Michael. One of them saying that Larry Michael, the longtime broadcaster, specifically said it was for Dan Snyder. And then we have other people saying that who know these people, the people who would have been involved in making these videos, that these people wouldn't have done this but for being ordered to do so by management. So that, I mean, that's basically where we're at on the reporting on those videos.
0: You were able to show some of this video to uh, one of the cheerleaders, I guess, and maybe her attorney. What was their reaction? Because I I noted in the story you wrote that this was the first that they've ever heard of a video like this even being made.
2: Right. I mean, the cheerleaders knew that the cameras were rolling, but they didn't think the footage that would have caught moments of nudity was going to go anywhere. They thought that would just be deleted. And the only thing that would be seen would be the kind of PG-13 sanitized behind-the-scenes video that the team published on on its website. So, I mean, these women are outraged. They feel violated. The idea that these moments in, in which they're exposed were kind of spliced together into these sort of, like, lewd montage videos, they do feel it is an outrage. And they also, you know, their attorneys feel like there's potential legal fallout here that they are exploring.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the other incident you mentioned in which Snyder told one of the girls, said, hey, you know, we got a room over there. Why don't you go with my friend? I guess uh, the quote was, why don't you, you and Tony go upstairs and get to know each other better? It seemed that a lot of people knew about that incident because she talked to other people about it. And she said, hey, this happened. I don't know how to react to it after.
2: To be fair, while the team and Dan Snyder didn't give us any comment, he has released a statement in the last hour and change denying that that event occurred. Tiffany told three people about it shortly after it happened. And I mean, their, their recollections are all rather precise. That was the comment she told them about. So yeah, I mean, that, that's a strong amount of support for an event to have happened, you know, 16 years ago. And, you know, Tiffany feels like that is sort of representative of how Dan viewed them and, and viewed his employees.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the workplace. You have a section in the article called Led by Fear, and basically there was a series of unwritten rules. If Dan Snyder was coming your way, turn around and don't acknowledge him. Uh, call him Mr. Snyder or Sir, never Dan. People were taught from the very beginning to kind of fear him and you know, maybe the upper management as well. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: We spoke to dozens of employees who had those same set of unwritten rules that you're told a few days after you show up, You never look him in the eye. You never call him Dan. He comes walking in your direction. You do a 180 and head the other way. And, you know, it's a particularly high pressure situation for the executive assistants, the folks who are working there, like at his beck and call around the clock. You know, we spoke to one former executive assistant who talked about, I mean, it's a long list of things you need to do every day to keep Dan happy. You got to fold the toilet paper in his executive suite to like a point. So like in a hotel, all the paper clips on his desk need to point in the same direction. When he wants a cocktail, he likes ice, but he likes the ice. Two stairs in the kitchen, in the basement, not the kitchen and the executive suite for some reason.
0: Yeah, that, one, that uh, was and, one know. of the ones that caught me. And, and they said, <laughs> you know, they had a to run down flights of stairs. You're coming back, you're in a dress or heels or something, and you're sweaty from running up and down. And that's the ice that he was demanding. And there was all sorts of stuff that women especially felt like they were in no-win situations. You had to wear heels, but make sure your heels don't make noises when you're walking around and is again wear smart business attire but got to be prepared to run up those flights of stairs just for that specialty ice.
2: right and then you know outside of dan and his conduct in our reporting i talked to a lot of women who felt like they were just in this impossible position at the working for the team because the team has this, to the extent that a human resource department existed all that it cared about from their view was preventing them from being around players preventing them from attracting the attention of players distracting players but meanwhile the women in the sales staff, they have their male colleagues and bosses asking them to develop friendships with the players, to get the players to come to these marketing events that they don't really want to go to. So, yeah, I mean, it was for women who, who worked in that office, they felt like they were just in a catch-22.
0: Yeah, there was a specific memo that you guys have a copy of that says, it has also been requested that if at all possible, females are not present in any football areas while players are here. And the women felt like, well, if I was meeting with the client or something like that, they had three alternative options, which was basically walk all the way around, make the client walk themselves, or just break the rule.
2: When we got a copy of that email, I was floored. I was astonished. It was bit, you know, as a person aware that there are unfortunate gender dynamics in professional sports, sometimes I, you know, I could see how some lunkheaded football operations guy could say in the office, hey, keep the women away from the football players, they're going to be a distraction. I never would have envisioned that the HR director at the order of the CFO would put in writing and send to an all-on email, just to be clear, women, your urge to stay away from the players.
0: And back to the human resources part of it, you know, these are this is a big organization. Football teams are huge organizations. And from my understanding, there was one full-time employee that reported to the CFO, as you mentioned, that was the human resources department, basically.
2: We had two specific situations about that CFO in the story. The one that we talked about the policy and the other was this this young woman, Shannon Slade, an intern who met with the CFO in 2016, and, and she claims she tried to file a sexual harassment complaint against a rather prolific harasser of women from our reporting, Alex Santos, the former pro personnel director. And the CFO told this woman, you know, this is a male dominated workplace and you have two options. You can stay here and you can try to avoid Alex or you can quit. So she decided to quit.
0: You know, one of the interesting things about all of this is, you know, you guys are doing your due diligence when you write these stories and your sources, and you also present the information to the organization for a response to something like this. What is it like when you send this stuff to them, knowing that they're squirming behind the scenes, and then they come back with something like, well, no, we deny everything, or, oh, we're just no comment at this time.
2: It can be a terrifying process because we need to tell them, here are the people that are talking to us on the record. And you know, here are the people who, who are making these claims. So you, know, you do fear that these people who you have had to as a reporter, you've had to work to assure that it is worth the potential stress of going on the record. You have to hope that they don't start facing blowback before the story is even out there. And our interactions with The team's representatives in this case were particularly combative, I think. And Dan has put out a statement today that I think sort of captures the discussions we were dealing with the last week and change.
0: Will Hobson, sports reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Well,
2: thanks so much. I appreciate it.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast this episode of the daily dive is produced by victor wright and engineered by tony sorrentino i'm oscar ramirez and this was your daily dive